Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, we're only days away from the biggest match in world football. Uh, do you want to get your gloating in now to save us time on Thursday's show? It, it's written in the stars that we're going to lose. It is written in the stars. Every single WhatsApp group that I'm on is saying exactly the same thing. We will have 80% possession and you'll score from an own goal. Uh, Well, it will have to be an own goal, Kieran, because we haven't had a shot in target. uh, On target in three games. Um, As you said, it's very nice to see our front three coming out in solidarity with Gary Lineker while not appearing on match of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, How are you, Kieran? All, all good, all good. Just back from a uh, a very nice meal with the Baroness last night. So uh, just, just back from it. Oh, well, back, back for a few hours. Oh, and I was going to say because and, and and she had a she had a cocktail which involved beetroot, which which is far braver than I would ever hope to be. Get out of here! Which, <laughs> which part of Sussex do you live in again? Remind me. <laughs> um, speaking of Gary Lineker, Kieran, will there be any financial implications over the Lineker? saga over the disgraceful way I think he's been treated. And oddly enough, I got a message from him on Friday morning saying it's all blown over there. It's fine. So I wish I'd put some money on the fact that it hadn't blown over. But is it going to affect, is it going to affect the broadcasting deal? Will there be financial implications for his contract? Well, I think if we separate out the two issues, the, the BBC has a contract with the Premier League to show highlights. Right. And that has a... I, th- I believe that would have a maximum um, amount of minutes that the BBC are allowed to show. Right. Okay. Um, and you know, and and you would imagine, you know, most broadcasters, they they would want to to extract the uh, the maximum they can. And yeah, you know, match of the day is normally on for an hour, an hour and a half, isn't it? Um, I, I last night was you're recording this on Sunday morning. Last night's show was about twenty minutes. I don't think there's a minimum amount of disclosure. So. I don't see how the Premier League can uh, pursue the BBC for not having commentary and not having punditry. I, I suspect, to a certain degree, that the BBC will have had quite high ratings mm, for the show, do. perhaps not bigger than normal, because of the curiosity factor. You know, what exactly were they getting? And then people, you know, people will go onto social media, and depending upon their 
their viewpoint of the matter. They'll either say, oh, it's even better because there's no pundits and no commentators, or, uh, I don't know why I said it in that voice. I just, <laughs> just, I just, I just I don't what came over me. Um, or they'll say, well, well, actually, you know, the, the contribution which is made by the professionals in the industry does add something to to the experience of watching highlights, um, and, and they'll be able to uh, reach which an appropriate uh, informed conclusion. Um, as far as Gary Lineker's contract is concerned, um, I think if the BBC try to claim that uh, his activities in highlighting a human rights issue is a breach of contract and is gross misconduct, they would be in fairly shaky position. And um, I would would imagine loads of lefty lawyers, I think all lawyers, apparently, according to the Prime Minister, are lefty lawyers. I think there would be a number of lefty lawyers who would be willing to represent Gary Lineker um, in in taking the BBC to court uh, over breach of contract, unless, of course, the two parties decide to come together um, to reach a a, a mutual parting of the ways. But Gary Lineker is is a very accomplished presenter and broadcaster. Mm. Um, you and I both know how much Gary Neville and Thierry Henry and some of the people that get from Sky. Um, I, I would imagine that other broadcasters um, would be willing to pay him a multiple of, of what he's paid before by the BBC. Yeah, you know what they need, Kieran? Gary, uh, Gary Lineker and the BBC they need an independent regulator. That's what they need. <laughs> let's get, let's get yes. that out of the way. I don't know how long match the day is at the moment, Kieran, because as you know, I only watch it when Palace win, so it's been a while. It could be. <laughs> uh, there certainly used to be a minimum. Um, when I did match the day too, back in those days, there was a minimum uh, of a minute and a half of each game. Right. At least a minute and a half had yep. to be shown of each of each game, but and I believe you're right. I believe there is a maximum amount they can they can show as well. Um, enough of that, Kieran. It's Questions Day uh, today. I was trying not to say day twice there, um, which is strange considering it's my name. But it's uh, the usual uh, selection of interesting questions, which I'm looking forward to hearing asked. And the first one uh, comes from me, and this is why would anyone have a cocktail with beetroot in it, Kieran. What the, <laughs> seriously, I mean, that's that's going to be coming back in two ways, both <laughs> physically and it's, it's, I'm going to keep mentioning it. How What was it, just like a slice of beetroot in the glass? No, it, 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 was, uh, it was beetroot. Um, I think there was some egg white involved oh. and various uh, various bits of alcohol, which, as you know, go completely above my head. Um, but she absolutely loved it to bits. I imagine she she liked the fifth one even more than the first one. (laughs) Well, judging from what she was singing on the way home on the train, I'm inclined (laughs) to agree with you. What was she singing on the way? Never mind what she was singing. A medley of Take That's Greatest Hits. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Did you move carriage? I did, yes. (laughs) Our first question comes from Matthew Hall. Um, Matthew says, my question is on players' contracted hours. We often hear of how much players earn per week, but are players contracted to work a set number of hours per day, week, or month? If so, would it differ for training, match days, or sponsor foundation engagements, or could they claim overtime? It's an interesting concept, Kieran. Yes, I I did contact one of our friends who is an agent, and uh, he says that there is a clause with regards to hours, um, because if the player is uh, playing midweek on on a regular basis, then then potentially they, they could be having to attend work seven days a week. Um, and I, I can imagine some fans would, and I, and I won't return to my former accent, I'd imagine that some fans could be frothing at the mouth at, at the thought of this. Um, but 
that there would be a potential clause. I think it will be rarely invoked um, if if the if the demands put on the player by the club um, did exceed a, a pre agreed limit. And I think it's a fairly from from what the agent told me, it, it is fairly standard. Uh, you know, because everybody's entitled to yeah, a day a week with the family and so on. But sometimes the demands of football are very intense. Yeah, and I think people don't realise as well. There's, there, there are other things that footballers are asked to do as well than, than train and play. There's all sorts of media commitments, marketing commitments. Um, there's a lot of handshaking to be done and a lot of smiling uh, that don't go to the eyes. So there are there are things that they will be contractually obliged to do, Kieran, won't they? School visits, that sort of stuff. Yes, yes, and, th- and that that tends to go under the radar because community activities. Don't don't sell newspapers, and I'm not being critical of newspapers here, but they, they, they don't make for good headlines. Whereas Kyle Walker's Willie does. <laughs> oh, they're very high on the list of three words I wasn't expected to hear. <laughs> well, three three word slogans is the way forward, isn't it? I, apparently so. Yes, I, I would have expected to hear the Baroness use that sort of language last night, Kieran. <laughs> yes. After a night on the beetroot, <laughs> you could have tried the beetroot and egg white bit. Yeah, I don't like beetroot, and I've I've not eaten eggs since I was in the Harry Krishna movement back in the eighties. Ah, oh, lordy, really? <laughs> we'll explore that. We've got a lot of questions to get through, Kieran. We'll ex- we do. We'll we explore do. that. We'll explore that on the next live show, shall we? Um, our next question comes from Ivan Noel. Uh, hello, Ivan. And Ivan said, with it being said that the gap between League Two and the National League is closing. Could the EFL pull the plug on parachute payments between the two divisions? Would this decision need to be voted on by the League Two clubs? And if that is the case, then surely they will be continued to enforce, even if not required. Now, uh, you will have an answer to this question, Kieran, but it, it, it turns out that in just a few days' time, we'll be able to answer ask this to somebody who really would know the answer. It is. It is, yes. Um my understanding, and I've spoken to some chief executives and directors of clubs that have been relegated from the EFL to the National League, and for people not familiar with the rule, is that you are entitled to, for two seasons, half of the League to EFL money. Uh, in terms of the broadcasting rights. But you're not entitled to the money which comes from the Premier League in, in what's referred to as uh, solidarity payments. And, and the solidarity payments from the Premier League are actually actually generate more money than, than the EFL's own TV deal. Um, the, the, the noises I got was that without these parachute payments, the clubs which are already, you know, they, they tend to be operating on... on very very tight margins anyway given uh, given the, the lower lower echelons of league 2 they they would genuinely struggle to survive and r- remember there's this sort of this argument with regards to parachute payments that they should be a parachute and not a trampoline yeah. um and and i think in terms of um the, a the amount of money that's given and b the period of which money is given i think they've probably got the numbers about right but the efl clubs could pull the plug, but then it, it and, and as uh, Ivan rightly points out, um, that decision would have to be voted on by League Two clubs. They they do that in order to protect them themselves, because they know that two are going to be relegated. Um, I think there is a there's an increasing viewpoint that as the National League um, has effectively become Division Five of of the the national game, given that the majority of clubs are full time, and also given the fact that some of the clubs are, are attracting five 
five-figure attendances yeah. on, on, on quite a regular basis, that there's a good case for going three up, three down, and, and therefore some greater form of financial support. But if, if you drop out, the, 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 the money from the, the two payments is, is worth over a million pounds a year. That could be you know, easily uh, you know, a, a good third of your budget. Um, and, and without it, uh, there would be a danger that clubs could go out of business uh, as a result of the change, although I'm, I'm sure that players will either be out of contract because you tend to get one- or two-year contracts only in League Two, or they would have to have clauses in their contracts which would, which would necessitate significant pay cuts on what is already not necessarily a particularly generous uh, pay scheme. So um, they... That they are there out of a decision which had been actively made by EFL clubs, which is ironic given that the EFL seems to want them to be abolished between the Premier League and the EFL. And, and you know, I've said on many occasions, I, I think that they are too high. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, they should be reduced but not abolished. Um, and trying to get the right figure is, you know, how long is a piece of string? Um, so the, they... Could could they be enforced even if not required? I've got to be honest, Ivan, that they are required. Um, if, if you've just had the trauma of, of losing your status in the 92 and all that that brings, you, know, it, 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 you are part of the EFL TV deal. It's not generous towards clubs in, in that division. They only get 8% of the total, so they get a tenth of what the, the clubs in the, the championship are generating. Um, but it, it's a classic case of every little helps, and, and, and the club's just gone through a fairly a seismic shock in, in losing its residence in, uh, in, in League Two. Another case for having three up and three down because it allows those clubs to come back that much quicker. It does seem quite difficult for those clubs to bounce back, doesn't it, from that particular league? Um, it's a very interesting answer, Kieran, but yet again, proof of why we weren't asked to present Match Today last night, because I, I set you up at the start, Kieran, with a golden opportunity to say, well, funnily enough, we are talking to the head of the National League in just a couple of days' time, and you ignored it completely. You, you just went straight into all facts and numbers and all that sort of stuff. But it is a question, Kieran, that we can put to the head of the National League, who we are interviewing in a few days' time, are we not? We are indeed, yes. Really looking forward to that. Now, we've got a long list of questions. Um, we have. <laughs> uh, but we won't be packed, because we're cuddly. We are cuddly, yes. So did you have the orange robe and all that stuff and go up and down Oxford Street? Um, it was in Manchester. Oh, I, okay. I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I was trying to gain the affections of a young lady. <laughs> It's a very long story, um, and I didn't get very far, and, and I gave up eating it. Well, I was never keen on eggs to begin with, but now I've never eaten an egg since. Yes, I'm going to point out, Kieran, there is an Oxford Street in uh, in Manchester. That's right. Yes, yeah. true. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I'm going to pretend that I knew that when I asked you the question. <laughs> uh, Nick Brace has an interesting one. Nick Brace says, charity football matches like Soccer Aid, raising money for worthy causes, seem to be more popular each year with the stadiums being used who bears the cost for their use is it a simple fee for renting them out or do the charities organize the match come to some sort of agreement to use it for free uh, which gets free publicity for the club well it would very much uh, vary on a case-by-case basis uh, soccer aid is normally held at old trafford yeah. um manchester united uh, and the glazers come in for an awful lot of criticism for, for certain issues. Um, but I, I don't think that this is one. I mean, the, I think the cost of stewarding would have to be borne by 
by the charity. But uh, I'm sure Manchester United, who do an awful lot of good, um, and you know, I think I think again, separate club from owners. I, I know I know people at Manchester United who who, have, who were really fantastic uh, during lockdown. Um, yeah, we've we've praised Manchester United as well for uh, agreeing to pay the real living wage to all of their staff. Yeah, something we campaigned for, um, and 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 they have gone along with that. So so there are people with, uh, with with a good good moral compass there. Um, with regards to something like this, I'm, I'm sure that they've done the the appropriate thing and said, look, you're going to have to go and pay for stewarding. We're not going to incur extra costs, but with with regards to the use of the ground, we're not going to charge you a fee. Uh, you know, clubs would normally if if there was an exhibition match. On a corporate level, or if you wanted to hire out things for a corporate function, of course you'd have to pay. But in respect of this, I don't think that is the case. Uh, Jamie Wheaton has our next question, and it's uh, a subject that's becoming increasingly of interest to many football fans, I think. And Jamie says, I've recently been reading about the overlap of environmental and financial sustainability of football clubs, looking in particular at how moving to more environmentally friendly options, for example, solar power for floodlights, may improve their financial outlook. My club, Plymouth Argyle, and we are coming to Plymouth, we've, we're definitely going to get there eventually, but yes. my club, Plymouth Argyle, for example, have installed more solar panels at Home Park as part of their long-term sustainability goals. However, the movement to more environmentally sustainable procurement, and thus hopefully improved financial sustainability, is often unreachable to smaller clubs due to capital expenditure requirements. The EFL has launched a green code initiative to help reduce clubs' footprints, but are there any club-led initiatives to promote the long-term financial benefits alongside the environmental impact for within the EFL and on a local level, uh, for example, amateur and non-league clubs, which um, is, a, is a long way round, basically saying that if clubs get their act in order, Kieran, they won't only be helping the the environment they can actually financially be helping themselves yeah yes and i think yeah we had uh, dale vince from forest green rovers yeah. on the show some time ago um fgr are moving to a an all wooden stadium that they are looking to increase yeah. their sustainability I, I think there are certainly opportunities you know football and whilst it might upset the groundsman you know you, you can have undersoil uh underseal undersoil heat generation uh through th- and things like that um i, I know that um uh at, at Brighton we've moved to uh recyclable cups and you know in terms of plastics and so on and i think clubs are on a on a on a bit by bit basis are trying to do more and more um you know ev- even at university we 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 now have in in some of the uh, in, in some of the toilets, we we use recycled rainwater. When we have signs that you know, it, it, the, the water won't be as clean as, you know, won't be as pure as perhaps you, you'd expect it to be. But actually, you know, why are we using uh, clean water uh, for, for toiletry functions? So clubs, I think, will be moving to this um, because th- there are cost savings, and and the, and as as the as as carbon fuels uh, you know are decreasing in terms of volume prices are rising we've got uh, obviously geopolitical issues as well to come into the fore which has had added to further increases as far as gas and electricity prices are concerned it simply makes sense football clubs have big 
property footprints. Those can be used for positive uh, methods, as, especially you know, for, uh, w- without wanting to, to fall into stereotypes. Yeah, Plymouth, Plymouth on the on the south coast, so therefore it's it's going to get potentially a, you know more more sunshine than, than than clubs elsewhere. So you you do a you do a cost benefit exercise. You you work out what's referred to as a payback period, and, and then make a decision as to whether or not individual. Uh, cost-saving measures can go ahead, and th- this this can apply to to the amateur game as well. So it, it is something which which clubs are looking at. Um, I I live not too far from uh, Lewis, uh, and, and I kind of go to watch Lewis on on occasions when and I'm not watching Brighton, um, and that they've got a. They've got a sustainability garden. They've got a they've got an organic garden uh, just off 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 the ground itself. Um, and, and we went there a few weeks ago, myself and the Baroness. And um, th- this this was uh, quite a surprise when when the uh, when the player of the match was awarded with a, a bunch of organic spring onions uh, for his performance. <laughs> just remind me what county this is again, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Sussex by the sea, of course. <laughs> Any beetroot in the garden? Well, I, I, sh- I should have looked at the time, yeah. actually. I'm- yeah, yeah I, I, I quite like beetroot, I have to say. There's a golden beetroot variety. It's very nice. Um, I, I'm going to point out, Kieran, that you know how geographically precise uh, and indeed geographically tetchy some of our listeners are. So you're going to get tweets for saying that Plymouth is on the south coast because it, it sort of technically is, but you're on the south coast, really. Plymouth's the southwest they're touchy about these sort of things um, so let's get to another country as quickly as possible mark cole uh, has our next question mark cole is a, a friend of the show has been listening right from the start and uh, mark raises i think a very interesting question mark cole says the 2022 world cup in guitar was moved partially due to concerns about the weather there during the usual world cup window I couldn't help but notice, though, that temperatures in much of the United States, co-hosts of the 2026 World Cup, were higher this summer than they were in Qatar. We've always been told the Winter World Cup in 2022 is a one-off, but what if it isn't? What would be the potential economic costs if there were to be another November-December tournament in 2026? I think this is a very valid point that Mark yeah. has raised, and, and indeed we've just seen this week um, a report uh, has come out from FIFPRO which is the the trade the sort of the global trade union of footballers and in that report um the members were asked how did they feel about a winter world cup because there's an awful lot of people with opinions in football but the, the actual people who play the game themselves they they do get very much sidelined yeah. um and i think we are aware that some clubs and some players upon returning from the world cup Aren't returning with the the normal level of spring in their step uh, than they would perhaps uh, anticipate because it it was you know a a demanding tournament and and you you got out of the the routine and, and we've even seen people like Pep Guardiola uh, say that Calvin Phillips was was overweight when he came back and you know he wasn't monitored in in the same way that they would have done at Manchester City so so I think there are some significant repercussions here. Um, I think he also raises a very good point with regards to um, the, the the weather in 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 the next tournament because it's it's scheduled for Canada, the USA, and Mexico. Um, if I'm sure uh, all Irish fans remember the 1994 um, yeah. World Cup and. Uh, for for anybody that's been yeah, grown up in, in Ireland, the, the the sun the sun doesn't shine 
there that often. It, it's the grass is green mainly due to the rain, um, and uh, the the Irish complexion is is not geared towards uh, thirty thirty plus degree heat. But a lot of the matches did take place. You know, you, you, you know and you saw. Uh, you, you saw you know, Jack Charlton not, not looking at his best either, uh, given given the weather involved. So th- this is an issue which, which appears to be um, completely bypassed. Um, now I, I think there are uh, there are reasons for that which uh, go go beyond uh, our uh, geographical and, and uh, weather based knowledge and meteorological knowledge here, um, and, and far more to do with the fact that. That everybody bought into the idea of uh, the World Cup in the USA being a good thing, yeah. regardless of everything, and the World Cup in Qatar being a bad thing. Full stop. And and perhaps things should be a little bit more nuanced. In terms of a November December tournament in twenty twenty six, that is not going to be the case. But I think that there is probably a 50-50 chance of a November-December tournament taking place in 2030 um, if it is awarded to Saudi Arabia because uh, China was at one point looking to host the, the 2030 World Cup. I think the the Chinese authorities now feel that perhaps it's uh, it's still a cycle at least too early yeah. for them to do that. They, if, if they are going to appear, they they want to, to make an impact. Um, so... There is talk now about, um, I think, uh, Saudi Arabia, Greece, and Egypt putting in a joint bid, um, and in which case you, you then have to consider what would the, the weather implications be, and we could move to another winter tournament. And once again, the, the decision will be made without any regard to the interests of players. I think the abiding memory for many people, Kieran, of that 1994 World Cup is FIFA officials preventing water being allowed onto the pitch mm. for players that were clearly suffering in the heat. Um, it, it's it's an interesting one. I don't think anybody wants to get used to a November-December tournament, but th- there are parts of the world that deserve the World Cup as much as other parts of the world. And if, and if that's the, the payoff for the World Cup going there, then so be it. Yes, yes. Yeah, only Australia have applied historically as well. Yes, and- of course. Uh, yeah, you, you can see you can see the rationale. What we want to see is good football. Now, the best football is not played in thirty degree heat. That's true. That's true. Certainly wasn't thirty degree heat yesterday at Sellers Park. But there you are. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Kieran Fulop. I like the sound of Kieran Fulop because Kieran starts his question by saying, whilst idly looking over the recent transfers, that's <laughs> <laughs> the sort of way you'd expect Oscar Wilde to, to, to ask a question. I was idly looking over the recent transfers. Uh, and there was one in particular that caught my eye. Is, is Finley, is, 
coming in or going out. He seems to be not. No, able it's, to make it, it. Yeah, the, the, the Baroness is upstairs. Oh, I, see. Um, I bet she is. Uh, upstairs. No, <laughs> yes. <laughs> while, yeah, Talking about Oscar Wilde, she's sort of, <laughs> <laughs> sort of <laughs> with, with a handkerchief, <laughs> sort of mopping her brow. <laughs> um, anyway, Kieran Fullock, one of these transfers particularly caught his eye. And it was the Portuguese winger Francisco Trincao who spent the season before last on loan at Wolves, then decided against taking up the option to make his move from Barcelona permanent. However, Wolves somehow managed to negotiate a sell-on clause of 20% for any future transfer of the player. Is this the first time a club has negotiated a sell-on clause for a player they don't own? And why would Barcelona agree to such a clause? Well, I think this is an absolutely cracking uh, piece of... uh forensic and detective work by Kieran. Yeah. Um, well, considering he's only idly looking over the thing, <laughs> yes. if, he gets, if he gets his arse in gear and does it properly, a, there's a job out there for him, isn't there? <laughs> um, the, the, the nature of contracts is that all clauses are, are valid if, if agreed by, by both parties. Um, I, I suspect that uh, the Barcelona were, were expecting him to move on and, and therefore signed the Signed, signed the contract without either – well, either A, they didn't look at the small print, or B, they thought that the chances of him not joining uh, Wolves on, on a full-time basis were so remote that it wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah. So so fair play to Wolves that they've they've effectively said that uh, yeah, we, we might have had a, an option to buy or the player had an option to join. Um, given that we've been involved in the development of the player, we, we therefore think that we should share in – uh, any any benefits from his development? So I, I've not seen this clause before. Uh, I'm, I'm sure some of our agent friends will be in in touch if if they, if they are uh, if they are more common than perhaps we realised. Uh, but uh, I just think it's a smart piece of work by Wolves. Um, and, and I think uh, without wanting to be too much of a conspiracy theorist, um, it has been observed that perhaps Wolves are what we sometimes refer to as an agent led club. So perhaps the agent here is. Uh, done something very smart. Yeah, or has been smart enough to realise that the way things are at Barcelona at the moment, no one seems to be reading the big print on, <laughs> yes. on, on the small print. Barcelona could do with getting you in. They'd probably pay you about 20 million quid a week that they, that they don't have as well. Um, <laughs> Andrew Cairns has our, has our pre-penultimate question. And Andrew says, when a transfer is agreed between two clubs in countries who use different currencies... Do changes in exchange rates affect the instalment payments or add-ons? Or is it an agreed fixed value at the time of the purchase? Or I would add, do they do it in, in a, a currency that they both agree on, like US dollars? Um, that wouldn't normally be the case because right. the vast majority of international transfers tend to be European-based um, right. and therefore potentially you could lose out twice in terms of having to go and pay two, two exchange fees. Um, but if it's from South America to Europe, then, then you could be using the US dollar as the selling currency given the volatility of um, uh of South American currencies. And again, I, I don't want to go and drop into uh, stereotypes there, but I, I remember when I was in Peru uh, where inflation was was a daily rate rather than an annual rate. And, and uh, we were there in Lima when there was a, a military coup uh, and, pri- and prices went up by 400% in a day, which which was fine for us because we 
we mainly had dollars, but uh, the uh, the Peruvian inti at the time was 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 a joke currency, um, and and it was the local people who who were really suffering. Um, but when it comes to uh, an international transfer, um, clearly there is a potential exchange gain or loss. The vast majority of uh, transfers would be arranged in the currency of the selling club um, in, in order to protect themselves. They want a guaranteed uh, – you know, the, the, so if a European club is selling to the Premier League, the, the deal would be quoted for in euro. And that's why we often see um, when players are coming from Europe to to the Premier League, you will see you know, Haaland's transfer was – I think it was you – know, £51.6 million. Pounds. Yeah. Well, it's a strange offer. But if you don't offer that, you'd have actually offered €60 million Euro, or €60 million Euro would have been the buyout clause. Certainly, if, if we take a look at um, Spanish football, I think we mentioned this on a recent show, what happens there is that the, the player has a buyout clause in the contract. And clearly, that would be stated in Euro, given that's the, the local currency as far as Spain is concerned. And then what would happen was that the player would be compensated if he was coming to the Premier League with that equivalent number of Euro, uh, as far as the buyout is concerned. So um, some clubs uh, do hedge with regards to currencies, and, and you see hedging gains and losses. And a hedge is where if you know that uh, let, let's say that we sign a player from uh, from Spain or Portugal and, and the cost is is 100 million euro and you're paying that in four installments what you can do is that you can go to the market and you say well I know I need to pay 25 million euro in one year's two years and three years time and you actually get a contract to buy euros at a fixed rate and, and that gives you a, a degree of protection with regards to um, any gains and losses because you end up paying more on the football contract you actually made a, a, a an equivalent profit uh, in terms of your hedge contract so given the numbers involved we are seeing more sophisticated means of uh, exchange rate protection being used at the upper ends of football I was rather hoping, Kieran, that when you said, uh, I don't want to talk about Peruvian national stereotypes, you were going to go on and tell us that all the bears wore duffel coats. <laughs> uh, um, it, <laughs> you had to mention, I don't know why you had to mention, you could have chosen any player other than Haaland. You had to jo- drop that. I'm sorry, I didn't. Yes, that one. <laughs> you would have been pleased, Kieran. Two things happened yesterday in the Porsons' arms before the game that brought a tear to the eye of any accountant who spends a lot of time in Manchester. Uh, and the first was that there were a group of older fans that nobody recognised who turned out to be slightly hesitant, nervous Man City fans who didn't know whether they were in the right pub uh, that we got chatted to, who were just the nicest blokes you could meet. Really proper, broad Manchester accents, which was, which was lovely. So it was really nice to, when two groups of fans could just meet. But at, at one stage, Kieran, before we were talking to them, uh, several people around the table talking about Palace's latest financial figures were throwing uh, the words like EBITDA. Uh, <laughs> I just thought, what I did, have we done? I, I just thought, what have I was, we done? Literally, I said, boys, the game's gone. What's, what's happened? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about EBITDA? And then, of course, I had to remind myself what EBITDA, I had to furtively Google what EBITDA was because <laughs> I'd forgotten what you told me about it. But yes, we, we've unleashed something terrible here. Yeah, I think... I think, you know, I think both of us should go back to the Harry Krishna movement, or one of us should go back yes. to it. I'll, I'll, <laughs> our penultimate question, Kieran, it, it comes from James Boll. I, and I, James, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's B O W E. 
so it could be James Bollock. I don't know. But it's a question, Kieran, football fans simply can't get their heads around the whole thing about football. Kits. I think I think kits is the thing that fans are more obsessed about, even than amortisation. Mm. But James says, uh, <laughs> nobody used the word amortisation. There's a, I was reading a really interesting thing the other day about Shakespeare in the year 1606 that nobody, nobody ever used the word equivocation until Shakespeare came along and obviously heard it in a pub somewhere and thought, this is a good word, <laughs> uh, and used it a lot. Uh, and nobody used the word amortisation. Don't, I don't believe anybody before any football game ever until three years ago used the word amortisation. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But, uh, yeah, so but apart from amortisation, it's kits and the economics of kits. James says Oxford United released their lovely home kit for the season in the summer, made by Macron for the first time, retailing at the nice round figure of £50, which is nice because most of the people wearing it have got a nice round figure as well. Uh, um, I've been quoting your previous episode about shirt sales, where you said the club would probably get six to eight pound of this fee, the rest go into the manufacturer to cover design, manufacturer, distribution, marketing, and margin, etc. Someone asked me a great question, though, which is how does this money get paid? Do the club have to buy a job lot at, say, £42 per shirt, then keep the profit and bear the loss of unsold shirts? Or do they get them for free in advance and have to transfer a fee to Macron per shirt sold along with unsold shirts? This very much varies from club to club and deal to deal. Um, so I, I was talking to to somebody with regards to, to Macron and um, they said, well, you, you might get you know, 250 grand's worth of kit up front and say about 150 grand's worth of kit for, for the first team. Um, but is it a bespoke shirt? Is it effectively an off-the-peg shirt in which you, you've got a club badge? It, it, that, that, that would have an impact um, upon the, the position of the manufacturer. Um, and, and the danger is that because quite a few of the manufacturers only want to have one or two production runs, um, you either have to run the risk of putting in a large order at the start of the season and being left with stuff you have to sell off cheap. And, and if you take a look at the websites of, of all clubs at this time of year, you know, even the likes of Manchester United are selling off this year's kit cheap um, compared to the launch price because they know it that they have to get it off the off off the off the racks by by June because that's when they start to gear up for for the new shirts for the next season. So it's it's very much a, a balancing act. Um, and uh, if if you're getting a bespoke shirt you know i was told that on a on a say a 50 pound shirt sale you you'd probably pay 22 pounds if if the manufacturer wasn't giving you a, a an upfront fee so it, it does depend you know if we if we compare manchester united to liverpool for example uh, manchester united get a guaranteed 75 million pounds from adidas and a small commission per shirt so Adidas make all of the margin, whereas Liverpool have got a thirty million deal with um, Nike, but Liverpool get twenty percent plus of of the sale price of the shirt. So it, it is it is something which is far more nuanced and far more complex, and it's it's spreadsheet heaven as well in terms of the deals that are are placed before the chief executive, and and this is why um, a little bit of Excel can go a long way. Um, and you know, there's there's quite often a problem that 
you 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 can't just place an order for you know we think we might sell another 200 so order 200 because there will often be minimum order quantities as well yeah you know, we, we've got the problem at brighton that we, we've not had any home shirts to sell since before christmas which which is a real shame given the the huge influx of of japanese fans who who come to it to every match now to to watch mitoma and then go to the club shop and um you know you've you've got a picture of uh you know Steve Foster from 1983 on a T-shirt, and the people are going, "Well, where's 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 Mitoma again?" Um, I mean, to be fair, they're they're, they're trying to, to do something about it, but it, but it is it is frustrating. Um, so you, you can end up with uh, significant stock losses. You can understand why the clubs don't want to do that because uh, you know who wants to buy last year's kit. Um, Sometimes you'll outsource that you know, some, to, to the likes of Fanatics and so on. They take on that risk, which means that the club effectively has to pay a price for that. Um, it Kits are amazingly complex areas, yeah. um, as, as we're discovering more and more. You know, and, and we did have somebody from uh, the, the distributors of Hummel, um, which uh, on the show itself, and, and you know, they subsequently went into administration yeah. and that's that's caused issues um you know for for clubs like i think coventry and, and millwall and so on i i i quite like the image kieran of some very excited young japanese football fans getting home to their parents after a trip to brighton and their parents going did you get your brighton shirt son or daughter and them going no they didn't have any they did get two king over beetroot <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, Paul Bentley has our last question, and this is a question. You talk about spreadsheet heaven, or, uh, <laughs> uh, and I don't think it's our catchiest slogan so far, Kieran, is it? A little bit of Excel goes a long way. <laughs> no. I, I, can't, I can't imagine classic FM, any of the adverts, going, a little bit of that. Um, but this is a question I think you, I was going to say, would enjoy researching, but I suspect, knowing you, you may have had the answer at the tip of your fingers anyway. Uh, Paul Bentley says, if a football club was run like a normal commercial business, where making profit is the aim, how much mm. should a footballer get paid in each of the English leagues if a club wanted to make, say, a 10% profit margin? Well, I did plug these figures into uh, a spreadsheet or two. And what we find is that it very much varies from club to club. So if we take the the Premier League um, as a start point, um, in order for, for Chelsea and Everton to uh, achieve that, that profit margin, Chelsea would have to reduce the average wage by £68,000 a week. For Everton, it would be £60,000 a week. Wow. Uh, for, for Palace, it, Palace are actually pr- run a reasonably tight ship. For Palace, it would only be four and a half grand a week on you know, Palace got average wage of what, 54, 55. Um, there would have only have been Three clubs, and these figures are from 2019. So I wanted to take out the distortion caused by lockdown and COVID on, on the numbers. Um, only three clubs would end up having to uh, increase the wages in order to achieve that, um, and that would have been Wolves, um, Newcastle under Mike Ashley. And we, when we said for all of Mike Ashley's you know, faults and his, his unpopularity with with Newcastle, he actually left a legacy of a club that was in a very strong financial position. Yeah, yeah. Um, New- Newcastle could have paid an extra £11,000 a week 
and they would wow. have still made this 10% profit margin. And the good news for PIF and Amanda Staveley and the Rubin brothers, who've inherited at Newcastle, that's given them quite a lot of positive wiggle room when it comes to offering generous contracts to players because uh, Newcastle will benefit. But uh, as usual, you know, the club that I've always said is is the one that would win the most uh, most price of football trophies in terms of profitability would be Spurs. You could you could have given uh, Harry Kane and Co uh, a nineteen thousand pounds a week. Uh, pay rise to all of the first team squad and and they'd still be making uh, profits of uh, 10% of their revenue so profits of around about 40 million pounds a year Uh, and and that's indicative of the the nature of the way that the club has been run it's always had uh, very good control over its costs Uh, and did you bother going outside the Premier League like Paul said could we mention the other leagues yeah, in in the championship, the championship is such a car crash that effectively the players would have to work for nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, would, it would, or yeah, we are talking, uh, we are talking regular. The the, av- the average wage in the uh, in the championship is around about fourteen and a half thousand pounds a week. Um, you would have to reduce that to uh, by two thirds on average. Wow, crikey. Uh, well, thank you for that question, Paul. Uh, if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, I'm not talking to you specifically here, Paul, by the way. I, I realise that makes it sound like I'm asking Paul to make a small monthly contribution to the pod. I'm asking everybody. Then you can do that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, um, as always, folks, thank you very much for all the support um, and all the means through which you do it, which, of course, Patreon is one, and we appreciate that you're, you're being very kind and generous, and it uh, it, it is appreciated um, very much. Um, there are a variety of ways uh, in which you can support the show, and one of which is to uh, is to go onto your uh, app and, and to give us a review. It, it, it helps us uh, in the charts. It helps us. Uh, in terms of, of also providing feedback and having credibility when we're trying to book guests and everything. We don't quite understand it, how it works, but uh, it, it does have an impact upon the, the algorithm in terms of, of the review. Uh, but, but by all accounts, um, the the narrative that you put on the review uh, is is less of an issue. So you could say you, you'd rather have the show presented by absolutely nobody in solidarity with Match of the Day and Gary Lineker and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to us. <laughs> I don't think it would make much difference to Gary either. Really. <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> of, yes. all the, of all the people that have been supporting him, he gets a whole long list and at the bottom of Kieran Maguire and Kevin Dallas. Nice, thanks, lads. Uh, well done, <laughs> there, there is also, you know how producer Guy's mind works, there's also the possibility that he's desperately scrabbling to get hold of Gary Lineker's agent as we speak, just to yes. check whether Gary fancies, fancies hosting the pod. For a couple of weeks, just to tide him over. Uh, and let's—I hope to, I do hope that situation is resolved. Uh, apparently, we're talking on Sunday, and apparently, emergency talks will be taking place between uh, the BBC and Gary Lineker today. Because I—I I love the BBC, and I, I'm very fond of Gary. He's a top lad, so I hope it does get sorted out. Bye, everybody. Bye. The
that provides some photo ball.